What's up, rich friends? Welcome back to another episode of Net Worth and Chill with me, your host, Vivian Tu, aka your rich BFF and your favorite Wall Street girly. Before we get started, just a quick reminder, if you have any money questions that you'd like to ask, please call or text 908-858-3410, and we'll try to answer as many as we can on the show. Speaking of which, this week, we're going to address one of the most asked questions in my DMs and on our phone line everywhere. So many of you have reached out and sent the same message. I've just been laid off. I don't know what to do. I've been in XYZ for my entire life. I'm so shocked and upset. What do you recommend? Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. And I'll be honest, every time I get this message, it's a gut punch. Because in our society, our identities are so closely tied to what we do for a living. And when we lose one of the biggest defining factors of who we are, it can feel like we've lost a little piece of ourselves. And I'm not saying that's how it should be, but it certainly is how it can feel. And I've been so lucky that I've never personally been laid off, but I wanted to be able to give thoughtful advice. So I knew we had to have a guest who has. There is nobody better to help guide us than the queen of cupcakes, a leading pioneer in the food space, a New York Times bestselling author and founder of Sprinkles. Everyone, please welcome Candace Nelson. Thank you, Vivian. Thanks for having me here. Of course. Thank you so, so much for being here. Obviously, you are a multi-hyphenate baker, founder, TV host, author. Can you give us like your own 30-second explainer of how you would describe yourself? Sure. I would say that I am an entrepreneur, author, TV personality, <laughs> mom, and wife. Mom. Okay. Mm-hmm. Awesome. I love that. I'd like to take a quick second to thank our advertising partners at Marshalls. All net worth and chill besties know that Marshalls hustles to get the deals, so you get the good stuff. As your rich BFF who likes to save and doesn't compromise on quality, Marshalls is literally my best friend. Marshalls has high quality on-trend finds and designer fashion at incredible prices for any occasion. New items arrive all the time, so Marshalls will always help you save a little coin while still being the most fashionable person in the room. Well-deserved PTO on the horizon? New passion project? Think of all the things you can do with the money you save by shopping the good stuff at Marshalls. 
Candace is being very, very humble. She founded one of the most successful bakeries. She is the OG cupcake girly. But for everyone listening, you're also probably familiar with my tagline of your rich BFF and your favorite Wall Street girly. But today I am not the only Wall Street girly in the room. Our lovely guest Candace here was actually an investment banker in her former life. Candace, can you tell us a little bit about your background pre-Sprinkles? Where'd you grow up, your school, your family? Like, how did you become an investment banker? Mm, good question. I ask myself that every day. Like, how, how did I get there? It's so far from what I'm doing now. I grew up actually moving around quite a bit. My father was a lawyer at a couple of different multinationals. And we moved around every couple of years, spent a lot of my childhood in Southeast Asia, actually, and ultimately went to boarding school and college in the States here um, in Connecticut and had no idea what I wanted to do. I was one of those sort of, you know, smart, but well-rounded kids. I didn't have my thing. That always really bothered me because I was surrounded by friends that just always knew what they wanted to do from like, you know, when they were five, (laughs) they want to be a doctor or a lawyer or work at a nonprofit. And I was like, I don't know, I could do anything. And so was somehow convinced that investment banking, being a financial analyst in the corporate finance department of an investment bank would be a great first step because it would just expose me to a lot of companies. I would get a lot of responsibility from a young age, and it would just be a great place to sort of cut my teeth in the business world. So it wasn't really that I was intentionally, you know, taking on the world of investment banking. It was kind of like shrug my shoulders, like, I guess this is a good place to go and start. And I'm kind of making light of it because obviously it was a very you know, it's it's a process to get one of these jobs and it's a very prestigious job to get. And I was one of the few women in my financial analyst program. This was, you know, a few years ago. And so I, I was certainly proud of being in that position because I felt like, you know, I was part of this era that we were still trying to make it in a man's world to a certain extent. And I had, you know, um, it was my first step into the career world. And here I was working at an investment bank. So that was pretty cool. And you mentioned you guys moved around a lot. How would you describe your family background? Would it be like lower, middle, higher income? I would say we were upper middle class. Mm-hmm. Definitely well-educated. My father had gone to Yale and Harvard Law School. My mom went to Berkeley and was working when she graduated college. So there was definitely a focus in my family on traditional education. But I would say that I was led to believe as I watched my dad, like you would get one job and follow that career path for sort of the rest of your life. Maybe you work for two companies max, but you were loyal to a company and you would have a career versus sort of a set of experiences or jobs. <laughs> totally. And, you know, you go to investment banking. Is this something that like you had like a family history in or like had anybody in your family been a banker? Did you like it? No, I didn't like it. <laughs> I, I didn't like it. It was. It was really intense. I knew it was going to be intense and I felt like it was sort of the price I had to pay to prove myself in the business world. I had been raised by my parents to believe that you should pursue your passion, but I didn't necessarily believe them because Mm -hmm. they weren't really pursuing their passions. My Mm -hmm. dad wasn't passionate about being a corporate lawyer. He just, it was- (laughs) 
it was his job and it's what he did to provide for his family. And so as much as I'd been raised that I could do whatever I wanted, I didn't still in my heart of hearts believe that. I really felt like, you know, who was I to expect to like my job? This was the price you had to pay to get the paycheck to pay the rent and be able to do all the other stuff in your life that you really wanted to do. Right. So it was really intense work. It was a lot of crunching numbers. There was, you know, I'll speak to my experience, but just in general, investment banking is really about just how much money you're bringing in and mm -hmm. how you're performing. And there's really no focus on, there wasn't at the time, mentorship or you know, development, career development. It was very much sink or swim. And I was determined to swim and I did. But as soon as the two-year analyst program ran out, I was I was out of there. Yeah. So tell me about, um, you know, you mentioned you're like, I'm out of there. What happened? How did you leave the industry? Mm. So it was the dot-com boom, the late 90s, and it was this early internet revolution. I mean, at the time of Yahoo and eBay, and <laughs> I had been working with these companies from the perspective of an investment bank, helping them raise capital and do M&A. But there were a lot of people that were working in these more traditional careers that wanted to go try to make their millions in this early internet gold rush. And so I did the same. After my two-year financial analyst program was up, I decided to go work at a an internet portal. It was called snap.com. I wish I wish it was Snapchat. It's not Snapchat. <laughs> snap.com. They were trying to be like a yahoo.com. And it was really fun. I mean, talk about company culture. This was like the entire other spectrum of company culture because there were so many companies popping up and everyone was desperate for talent that they were throwing all these great freebies at you. So we had like yoga Fridays and like, you know, for team bonding, we'd go up to Napa and ride hot air balloons and like eat at French laundry. I mean, it was crazy. I mean, it was a frothy, frothy time. Yeah. And sure enough, times like that, as we're learning, don't last forever. So the dot-com bust happened a couple of years later and snap.com was no more. There were a lot of internet companies that went under and I was all of a sudden on the couch, no job, no prospects. Everyone was leaving San Francisco because the entire industry had been decimated and I had no idea what I was going to do. How did you feel when you lost your job? You know, you mentioned your dad went to Yale and then Harvard, your mom went to Berkeley. Ostensibly, you have a lot of friends who, you know, you went to college with and like all these like cool people who are elitely educated. Did that really stress you out that you're like, I'm jobless? Yeah, I think when you're a certain type of person and you're just used to following a path, right? It's like, I'm going to study for the test. I'm going to get the A. Like you, you sort of work within the confines of like, there's a lot that's within my control to be able yeah. to succeed. Right. And then life throws you such a curveball. So the first curveball was, of course, the dot com bust and being yeah. unemployed. But not long after that was 9 11. And so this sort of confluence of events led to me doing a lot of self reflection and coming to the conclusion that I didn't want to do anything close to what I'd been doing. And I really did want to do something that felt meaningful to me and gave back to the world in some small way. So I wanted to find some professional purpose. And that started with doing something that I enjoyed, you know, really sort of embracing a passion. I had 
always loved to bake growing up because, as I said, I grew up as an expat a lot of my childhood. And one of the ways I stayed connected to my homeland was through food and through baking the foods I missed from home. When I was living in Indonesia, I couldn't go to the corner store and get, you know, a brownie or cupcake. So I had to learn to make it myself. You know, these were analog days. I wasn't emailing. There was no Netflix. There was, I felt very disconnected from my homeland. And so baking it always represented not just like a fun hobby, but something very meaningful to me. And being in San Francisco at the time, I mean, what I mentioned French laundry, I was eating at all these incredible establishments on a regular basis. And I just had this, there was this real awakening, reawakening really, because food had always been a big factor in my family of appreciation for fine food. And there was this incredible pastry school down the street for me, literally just a bus ride away. And I thought, what if I went to pastry school? Like maybe, maybe I want to embrace this as my career. It, it was such an unusual idea at the time. Baking was not cool. It, it really wasn't. I mean, all my friends were in fashion and finance and, you know, saving the world. And also there was this sort of feminist, you know, like piece of, of me. Mm -hmm. I had made it. I'd broken through this glass ceiling, right, to make it in this man's world and, and work in an investment bank. And I was going to go like embrace the domestic arts. There's, there was just something that felt very regressive about that. But I just sort of allowed myself the time to go to pastry school, test my interest. And I loved it. I loved how tactile it was. I loved working with my hands. I loved creating something that I could give to someone else and watch them enjoy. It was very, um, it was rewarding. What was the favorite thing that you made during pastry school? Like your favorite class or favorite lesson? I was known for my cakes. I was always a cake girl. Mm -hmm. So the... Our chef instructor was like, Candace, you're the cake person. I I just ha had a really a deft hand for cakes. I loved to eat cakes. I loved the creativity with which you could decorate them and layer them. And I just felt like the sky was the limit. What's your favorite type of cake? Like if you close your eyes and you're like, ah, oh, my birthday's tomorrow, what cake am I picking up? So I, if you follow me at all and you followed my baking sort of trajectory, you will know that I have a real soft spot for chocolate, but also angel food cake. Now, angel food cake was a type of cake that was really big in the 80s. And I have been like shouting to the world for years now for the comeback of the angel food cake. And it hasn't happened yet, but mark my words, it will, because it is just this delightfully light airy, spongy, sweet cake. And it's it's an incredible palette for anything, right? You can do a glaze, you can do whipped cream and fruit, you can put an actual frosting on it. But I make angel food cake now for, I have two sons. I make it for their birthdays. Their friends come over. They're like, what is this divine dessert? They've never had it before. I'm like, it's the best. So if you haven't had angel food cake, definitely give it a shot. You know, it's so funny. I don't want to steal your thunder and I don't want to ruin this for the rest of the podcast, but I really thought you were going to say red velvet. Oh no. I, so red velvet has certainly, you know, it sprinkles is synonymous with our yeah. red velvet. It's our number one seller. It has been since day one, but I almost didn't create a red velvet cupcake on the original menu of flavors. Red velvet was markedly absent. And the reason was I'd never had a red velvet cake that I liked before. I was like, what 
even is this red velvet stuff? It's just, what is the flavor of it, of it? There's no flavor. It's just red. Like, how can people like this? So before we opened, my husband, who is my co-founder, partner in the business then and still now with our, our new businesses, he's from Oklahoma. And red velvet is huge in Oklahoma. And he goes, honey, you got to make a red velvet cupcake or else, you know, no one's going to allow me back into the state of Oklahoma. And so begrudgingly, I said, fine. And I said, but I'm going to make it my way. So I really amped up the cocoa quotient to make it sort of, you can taste like the Belgian cocoa in there and um, really focused on the texture of the cake. And then also sort of contrasting it with this really rich, tangy, creamy cream cheese frosting. So finally was happy with the result and I'm glad I put it on the menu. Thank you, Charles, because you know, we're just synonymous with it. And it, you know, sprinkles wouldn't be the same business without our red velvet. 100%. You had mentioned, you know, so you're at, you're in pastry school. Had you always kind of secretly wanted to go into the food business? So I had a great grandmother who I never met. She had passed before I was born, who was a restaurateur in San Francisco during the depression years. I have a black and white photo of her restaurant in my closet. And I look at it every day. The name of her restaurant was Craig's. Craig is my middle name and actually now my maiden name because I I kept it because it was so meaningful to me. And she was a woman very much ahead of her time. She was a single mom. She was holding down the fort with kids and a business. And she also had an incredible heart. I mean, she was very generous. You know, it was the depression years, a lot of people down on their luck and she would serve free meals to people who had lost their jobs out the back door. So even though I'd never met her, I felt as if I knew her because my mom had such great memories of growing up and going to a restaurant and eating her fabulous desserts. So she was an inspiration to me, but I, I was not raised in a family that said you can be a doctor lawyer or go into the food business. That wasn't, that, that didn't really mesh with sort of the track that I guess I had for myself, but also sort of the conditioning of all the people and the educational institutions around me. That wasn't something that people really did. Got it. It was considered more of a trade, right? Like, it's like, if you, if you want to go into the food world, you go to cooking school instead of going to a liberal arts college. Everyone thought I was going to business school. And so when I went to pastry school, definitely raised a lot of eyebrows. So you speak about, you know, kind of being this groundbreaker because you didn't really know that many people in the industry. You finish pastry school. How do you even know what to do next? Like there isn't like a step-by-step career path when you're an entrepreneur. And there certainly was not a blueprint for how to start a cupcake business. No, you're absolutely right. And so I took it just step by step. I literally just said to myself, Candace, what do you want to do? Like what fills you up? What brings you joy? And that's what led me to baking. And then baking led me to pastry school. And even when I was in pastry school, I was like, I have no idea what I'm going to do with this, but I'm going to figure it out. And after pastry school, I just started baking cakes out of my kitchen. And, you know, I love these cakes because they were super creative, but they were sort of a business dead end because personalized layered cakes is not scalable. And so what I realized was I loved what I was doing, but I also wanted to make an actual business out of it. So I thought about creating something that people could conceivably buy on a daily basis. And at the time, cupcakes were still very basic. They were a commodity. You saw them in the grocery store in plastic clamshells. They were just sort of- They were yucky before you came on the scene. I was like, (laughs) nobody wants this. This is something you see in like the lunchroom in your corporate office. And they're kind of like hard. Yeah. (laughs) They were like shelf stable. And I'm always such a big believer in fresh baked, like a fresh baked good. 
It has to be fresh. And so I thought, you know, here I was doing something super creative and I loved that, but I wanted a business that was scalable. Meanwhile, as I was walking through the grocery store, I saw this beloved American treat. I mean, cupcake is innately and uniquely American. And I appreciated that, you know, having grown up as an expat my whole life, I loved sort of classic American desserts. And we'd all grown up with cupcakes in this country. They were nostalgic. We had them at our birthday parties and our lunch boxes. But as you said, they hadn't grown with us. They hadn't evolved. And so I thought the cupcakes time has come. It needs a makeover. So I set about elevating the cupcake from the inside out, starting with the ingredients, the technique, the recipes, and then the entire look and feel of it. So everything from how the frosting was applied to the actual decoration itself, I reinvented the sprinkle itself into the modern dot that's synonymous with sprinkles now. The cupcake wrappers are all chocolate brown, which felt very sophisticated, elegant, and sort of grounded the cupcake and thought that if the cupcake could be reinvented, it could really stand on its own. And so the idea of the first ever Cupcakes Only Bakery came about from that. So tell us kind of your business plan of what happens after you decide, hey, I'm going to have the first cupcake first bakery. How, how do you start that? Like you have to find employees, you got to get a store, you got to have, you know, boxes to put the things in. Like how does that happen? Again, very much bit by bit, step by step. So once I landed on the idea of cupcakes, I was really lucky because my husband, who did have his MBA and was working in finance, but always had wanted to be an entrepreneur, he really did come from an entrepreneurial family. He said to me, I think you really have something here. And if you want, I, I'll do this with you. And that was really important to me because I hadn't been raised to believe that I could be an entrepreneur. I didn't think of myself that way. And I don't think I would have, this sounds not in vogue with what we all talk about today, but just keep in mind, this was a different time and I am a different generation. I don't think I would have had the confidence to do it if someone hadn't said to me, I believe in you and I'm going to help you. And so my husband became my emotional support. He became my support in every way in the business, but it really was my baby, right? I was the baker. I was creating the product and I started making these cupcakes out of my house. And at first my friends were of course, ordering them from me because they felt sorry for me because <laughs> I, I had just sort of lost the plot. I, I was supposed to be going to business school. I'd gone to pastry school and now I was doing what? Making cupcakes oh. out of my kitchen. Candace was lost in sauce. It was very sad. But anyway, thank, thankfully they did take pity on me and ordered some cupcakes. They would take them to parties. And before I knew it, I was getting calls from friends of theirs who had the cupcakes, loved them, was starting to order them for baby showers and dinner parties. And I thought, now, keep in mind, we had moved from San Francisco to Los Angeles during this time because the economy in San Francisco still was really, really dire because of the dot-com bust. So was getting all these orders just out of my little West Hollywood kitchen. One of those orders happened to be from the producer of the Tyra Banks show. She wanted my cupcakes for Tyra Banks' birthday. And here I was with one little KitchenAid mixer. Granted, a big, <laughs> I had a big dream, but I still was, I mean, very, I was just like cobbling this all together. And I thought, oh my God, I've made it. I am making Tyra Banks's birthday cupcakes. And I, I knew a few people in LA, but this wasn't some sort of situation where like I had a hookup with agents or I had any celebrity friends. Like I did not know the scene in LA at all. So it really <laughs> was my product speaking for itself. And it really was an indicator to me that there was a need for this in the market. So my husband and I started looking for a location. We ended up 
in Beverly Hills. This was all bootstrapped. So we had a little bit of money, you know, in the bank from our various jobs, banking careers, days. banking <laughs> days. You know, those bonuses are great because it's harder to save money paycheck by paycheck. But if you get a big bonus at the end of the year, which is what happens in investment banking, you can say, okay, I'm going to put that in the bank and yeah. live off my salary. Yeah. So that's what we had done. And, you know, we knew we had a limited amount of time, a limited amount of cash. And of course, trying to find a store, building it out, everything in, you know, when it comes to opening costs, ended up balloon, ballooning and mushrooming. And it was incredibly stressful. So fortunately, we had a lot of success from day one. But it wasn't because people were cheering us on from day one. I mean, keep in mind, I was planning to open a first of its kind concept mm -hmm. devoted to carbs in a place that's not really known for people right. indulging in carbs. They love and kale, green juice, yoga, cupcakes. No, not so much. But it was also the height of the low carb craze. You know, South Beach diet was on the <laughs> New York Times bestseller list. So everyone was like, you're mad. This is a ridiculous idea. But I had this unique insight and I could see the opportunity based on my just, you know, blend of passion, industry experience, and just knowing the market and, and yeah. being able to see LA for what it was. Because I'd mm -hmm. come from San Francisco, I wasn't just buying into the stereotype of LA. I was actually seeing it with my own eyes as an outsider. And as I drove around, I saw a lot of burger shops and I saw a lot of donut shops. Mm -hmm. So I thought to myself, there's someone in LA eating this stuff. Yeah. yeah. If I can make it worthy of people indulging, really craveable and delicious and fresh, they're going to do it. But not only that, I had to brand the cupcake and make it special and make it like giftable, right? Mm -hmm. Because in LA in particular, this is, there's this incredible culture of gift giving that I think comes from the entertainment industry. And oh I'd seen that. I'd seen all these gifts flying around town. And I thought if I can make these cupcakes an appropriate gift, so it would be a stand-in for a dozen roses or a bottle of champagne that I'm, I'm, I know I've got the gift giving business. I can at least survive on that, but it ended up being so much more. It ended up becoming a phenomenon. And I think that one of the main reasons why, besides having a great product, was the fact that I was doing something different. Mm -hmm. I was flying in the face of what people expected to find in LA and I really piqued their curiosity. And so people came out and then I was absolutely crushed with these lines of people demanding cupcakes and I, my production, I mean, I couldn't keep up with it. I was totally caught with my pants down and <laughs> all I could do was apologize to these angry customers. All I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. We're baking these cupcakes as fast as we can. And so this scarcity ended up driving FOMO. Wow. This cupcake that was $3, this fancy cupcake that you couldn't even get your hands on. And so then there were lines down the block and people would drive by and be like, what is that? And so we ended up having this incredible virality that had nothing to do with any sort of marketing plan. We didn't have any money left over for marketing or PR. It really was just the product that drove demand that we couldn't keep up with. And it built on itself. So you essentially were able to turn your cupcakes into like Nike, like Air Jordan sneaker drops mm -hmm. so badly to the point where people were like, oh, I don't even know what this line's for. I guess I'll stand in it because they're just, they want what everyone else has. And I hear to this day from husbands who said, oh yeah, I've, my wife's made me wait in your line before. I thought I was waiting in line at a boutique. To your point. For clothes. For clothes, because it seemed like that's sort of, you know, yeah. like fanaticism, but also because 
the bakery we had designed didn't look like your traditional bakery. Mm -hmm. Everything we'd done had been elevated and reinvented. So the entire experience didn't feel like grandma's kitchen. It was sleek. It was modern. It was elegant. And so people didn't think they were waiting in line for, for a baked good. And talk to me a little bit about that branding. But before we get into that, it's time for a fall fashion advertisement from our friends at Marshalls who make it possible to buy luxury goods and designer items without breaking the bank. From the boardroom to running your own small business, your style matters. Nothing is better than stepping into a room looking stylish and feeling confident, and there's no better season for achieving your best style than fall. Marshalls hustles for deals so you don't have to, and their stores are always stocked with the best finds every season. Marshalls gives you access to in-demand finds at amazing prices so you can get this season's dresses, blazers, handbags, and boots for less and have your closet net worth and chilling in style. I love the the cursive sprinkles. I love the fact that it's, please don't be mad that I'm saying this. When I first saw my very first sprinkles cupcake, I was so excited to eat it. And I was like, wait, are these boobs? <laughs> it looks like a boob. And I was like, I love this cupcake even more. And I was like, where do we get these? Can we get more? Like, it was so fun. Like, talk to me about that idea. Like, you, you know, I think when we think sprinkles, we immediately picture those like kind of nasty, waxy ones mm. that go on ice cream that are rainbow colored and like don't really have a taste. Mm-hmm. What made you think, I am going to completely just reinvent this word? Mm-hmm. So it stemmed from what I was doing. And what I was doing was essentially a modern update on a traditional classic, the cupcake. And so if I was going to reinvent the cupcake from the inside out, I also had to reinvent the sprinkle that went on top of it. Really had to surprise and delight, you know, at every touch point. And I also was acutely aware that in opening a bakery, I didn't have much, unlike a a tech company, I didn't have much in the way of defensibility of my product. Anyone could open a cupcake bakery. And so I knew if I was plunking down my entire life savings, my reputation, years of my life on this idea, I had to do something to somehow protect it. And so that led me to brand. I had to make sure my cupcake was differentiated. And mm-hmm. so when if somebody looked at a buffet of desserts, they would like immediately be able to mm-hmm. pick out the sprinkles cupcakes from the rest. And this was very important because in spite of the fact that everybody said we would fail, as I mentioned before, <laughs> we were very successful from the get-go, known for our lines, media came calling. We were a media phenomenon. It was crazy. Well, what happened next? Cupcake bakeries started popping up across the country, by the way, around the world. And a lot of them looked a lot like ours. I remember yeah. people coming in and waiting in line. They had, this is you know pre-iPhone days, but like these huge DLSR cameras, like taking pictures of every last detail in our store. And we knew why they were doing it. Um, and ultimately, had a rule that people couldn't take photos in the store. Can you imagine in this day and age having a business where you didn't allow people to take photos? No iPhones, please. Like, no (laughs) What? That's all anyone wants. So, um, you know, we were actually able to trademark that modern dot decoration because it was so well established as a sprinkles decoration that people could rip off pretty much anything else about our business. We couldn't do anything about it. But the one thing they couldn't touch is they couldn't recreate that decoration. Didn't mean people didn't try, but we could send them, we could send them a letter telling them to stop and they had to. Yeah. So that was an important piece of our sort of moat around our business was, was that very highly differentiated uh, sprinkle. I love that. 
I love that your single sprinkle, even if you couldn't protect the name or like the word or anything, but you can protect your branding because that makes it so special. And you are so right. Like when someone brings sprinkles to like the office, you know, you know, you're like, I know the box. I know, I know what I'm about to get. Like, and I'm always like, which one's the red velvet move aside folks. Um, so definitely. I love that so much. Thank and you. you you mentioned kind of like being almost a success overnight. You're getting all of this press. What would you say is like the biggest challenge or setback that you guys faced? Well, neither Charles or myself had ever worked in a restaurant or a bakery before. <laughs> so we were just kind of building the plane as we were flying it. We were figuring it out. And as I said before, I mean, certainly our production was completely out of whack. That first day, I thought we had enough cupcakes to get us through the day. We were sold out in two hours and I spent the rest of the day in the back, like hiding from customers, trying to churn out as many cupcakes as I could. But people were mad. They were angry. You know, they'd driven across town and found parking and had promised their kids they were bringing home cupcakes. I mean, and the weight of that, like I felt such a responsibility because Remember, the whole impetus for this was for me to find like a piece of joy, a place, a joyful place in the world, for me to be able to give something joyful to people. You know, it was really inspired by my like search for joy in the darkest time post 9-11. And so here I was not able to deliver on that promise. Like I, it was awful. I mean, it was definitely a better problem to have than nobody showing up. But it was Certainly. still a problem. And, yeah. and I wasn't sure at the time if people would give us a second chance. You know, quite often I would say if if a business really disappoints you, you're not going to give them a second chance. But I think there was something in the fact that they saw how hard I was working and I truly was there apologizing, explaining myself, you know, and, and they, they just, I think there was a connection there. They, they loved the story of, you know, leaving the banking world to pursue my passion. And I think people, I don't know, their hearts went out to me. They could see that I was trying. And yeah. so they gave us a second chance and we ultimately ended up getting it together, hiring some people. <laughs> You know, getting some bigger mixers, scaling up the recipes <laughs> bit by bit. We figured it out, but it 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 was hard. It was really hard. It was physically exhausting. There were nights when my husband and I just rolled up aprons and slept on the bakery floor because by the time we got home, we would, wouldn't have more than 10 minute nap before we had to get back to the bakery and fire up the ovens. Um, we had people trying to steal our recipes all the time. It, it was just incredibly intense, very exciting, but um, unbelievably intense. Yeah. Uh, I'd love to know, let's talk a little bit about money because I'm so nosy. Um, when you started making these cupcakes, I think you mentioned they're $3 per cupcake. Mm -hmm. And for a dozen that comes out to $36. And Mm -hmm. traditionally, when you think about the cupcakes that you would walk to your normal grocery store, Mm -hmm. you you can get like a dozen for what, 10 bucks, Mm -hmm. something, maybe even less than that. Did you ever have pushback at that price point? And how did you handle that? If I wasn't apologizing to people for not having cupcakes in the case, I was explaining to them why they were so expensive. Probably for the first six months, maybe the first full year, people would come in and be like, what is the deal with how expensive these are? And so I didn't have to educate people on the cupcake, but I did have to educate them on why mine were so different. And for the most part, once I walked them through the ingredients and how we were baking fresh and how special my product was, and by the way, how like the value compared to like a Starbucks latte, no offense, Starbucks, I love you, but still, right? (laughs) Um, People understood for the most part. The people that didn't, I would say just 
just buy one, just buy one, taste it, and you be the judge. And nine out of 10 times, those people would come back and ask for half a dozen. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes the product has to speak for itself. But no, there was a lot of education that had to happen because you're right. People were used to spending 50 cents at Ralph's for a cupcake. They didn't understand a $3 cupcake. Yeah. And again, I'm so nosy. I always want to know about money. When did you start making money doing this? Or were you losing money at first? Or like, was it like, because the success was so strong, like, were you just always making money? Well, we were saving a lot of money on labor because Charles and I were working (laughs) every day. (laughs) We had no employees. Um, And even though we were in Beverly Hills, I mean, it was a postage stamp. It was 600 square feet front and back. Oh, wow. Okay. And it was a highly profitable product. And it was so many transactions per day. So we started cash flowing within a few months. Oh, amazing. And we, it was incredible. You know, this was when we were the only shop in town, right? So. Right. Then, of course, when you're successful, competition follows. And as I mentioned before, imitation is bound to follow. Um, but every little, you know, every last cent that we made was invested back into the business. Mm-hmm. We could have been lining our pockets with it, had one store and been fine, but we had plans to go national. And so I tell the story in my book, Sweet Success, which is really the story of, of my building sprinkles. Um, Which by the way, you guys is available at all book retailers. It's available on Amazon. Please go check it out. Sweet success by Candace Nelson. Sorry, thank you. Thank you. Now I've been getting so much great feedback on the book for any aspiring entrepreneurs or anybody who's at a crossroads in their life. But I tell the story about how, you know, my parents gave me a used sob when I went to college. And so this used sob got me through college. It got me through my years in San Francisco. We drove it down to LA, several years in LA, it finally started conking out, right? And in LA of all places to have this like old car, meter of a car, right? That, I mean, at a minimum it has to work. And I remember it breaking down in front of like the busy um, coffee bean in West Hollywood, like right on Santa Monica Boulevard, it just like went kaput. And I was, I mean, thankfully, okay, but mortified. Like everyone was watching. They're like sipping on their ice blended and watching me in my car completely fail. And I was like, I really need a new car. But sure enough, we needed a new mixer even more. And so we took the car to the shop for like the 20th time, had to get some more miles out of it because we had to invest in our business. Um, So the book includes stories like that, just to give you a little insight. It's so easy for us in this culture to look at like the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow and assume that it was all so easy. And and of course that person was successful. They were set up to be successful by X, Y, and Z. And so I really wanted to shed some light on the fact that it wasn't, it wasn't um, just a foregone conclusion. And all of the sacrifices that I had to make bootstrapping, I think it's important to remember those really humble first steps and beginnings. And those, those periods of time in your life where you're like, what am I going to do next? Like, I have no idea. And you just, as I said, you in the book, if you follow the breadcrumbs, like you go step by step and, and you trust yourself and you bet on yourself and you figure it out. And if you had to ballpark, and I don't know if you're even comfortable answering this, you can feel free to say no. How much do you think you guys made the first year, the very first oh. year? I, I have no idea, but I'll tell you, I mean, there were days in the early days where we would sell, this would be like a holiday, but we would yeah. sell 20,000 cupcakes. 20,000? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It, it was, you know, high margin product. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Cool. Um, so you have this 
successful cupcake business. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about the vending machine. What happens? <laughs> like what? Like suddenly you're like, oh, I want to become a tech entrepreneur. I want to be the first cupcake vending machine woman. Well, it's funny because you think that all of your, so you look back on experiences in your life and think, oh, that wasn't worth anything. And then you realize it all comes together in the end, right? Like my banking days. I mean, not that I was in commercial banking, but ATM and technology. I was in tech too. But yeah. I think I think the thing that that makes Charles and me different as far as being food entrepreneurs is that we do bring this lens of innovation to the space, sort of a known as a low tech space, right? Traditional yeah. retail and restaurants. But we're always looking for ways to disrupt and mix it up. And we had been quite disruptive with Sprinkles. But as I said, there was a lot of competition. There was a lot of emulation. And so I woke up one day and was like, hmm, not that differentiated anymore. Now we're one in a crowded pack. And so, you know, Obviously, a lot of energy had to go towards operating the business and expanding the business, but then you always have to save some energy for just brainstorming the crazy ideas. And my husband and I, I say we like to embrace the crazy ideas. But the story of the Cupcake ATM was I was pregnant with my second son, came home from a party late one night and had a pregnancy craving for a cupcake. There were no more cupcakes in the house. Sprinkles was long closed. And I was kind of really grumbly about it. Like I was ornery. I was like, Come on. I was like, I own a cupcake shop and I can't even get a cupcake this time of night. And so, you know, and I talk about this in the book in terms of ideas and leaning into personal frustrations is where the best ideas come from. You know, any sort of quote unquote normal person would have been like, all right, I'll get a cupcake tomorrow and gone to bed. But mm -hmm. Charles and I stayed up and we started batting around ideas and we're like, that's an interesting idea. What if you could get a cupcake really late at night? I'm sure there's other people out there jonesing for a cupcake at two in the morning. And, you know, we pay rent 24 hours a day. Why wouldn't you want to monetize 24 hours a day? And we just kind of kept batting these ideas back and forth and ultimately came up with this idea for the cupcake ATM and really sort of disrupted the, the cupcake landscape yet again. I love that. And, you know, you've built this massively successful business. How did you go from being this baker entrepreneur to all of these other cool jobs that we discussed at the beginning of the segment, you know, author, TV host, all of these other things? Well, I'm a creative entrepreneur and a creative mind is never at rest. And <laughs> so I'm constantly noodling on my next idea. And whether it's another business or a new book or another show, um, whether I'm on it or producing it, I think creation for me is, it represents optimism. I, I just... I, I feel like I'm in my flow when I'm dreaming up the next thing and I love it and I'm addicted to it. In 2012, about eight years after we had scaled sprinkles to 11 locations in the Cupcake ATM, my husband and I decided to step away operationally from sprinkles. We sold the majority stake to a private equity firm and we ended up going right back into the food business. We now have a <laughs> pizza concept called Pizzana, which we're about to open tonight in Silver Lake, our fifth location. And we are expanding into Texas and we're shipping our frozen pizzas on Gold Belly, but this is really extraordinary award-winning, what we call neo-Neapolitan pizza. So um, trying to, to do the same thing with pizza that we did with cupcakes. And I encourage anyone who's in Dallas at this point and anywhere in LA to come check it out. You are really a serial entrepreneur. I love that about you. And you know, you're talking about doing all of these new things. What advice would you give to people who may have just lost their jobs and feel like they're starting over and might want to consider doing their own thing? I do think that 
at first you're in shock when something like that happens. And it's hard to get out of the headspace that it's a terrible event or it's a tragedy. And I think, you know, let yourself feel those feelings for a little bit. You have to sort of mourn the loss of what you thought your life was going to be. But don't give yourself too long to wallow because I think that there is a lot of positive positivity really that comes from action, momentum that comes from just picking yourself back up and, and starting to take those steps towards that next chapter in your life. And it sounds trite to say, but I wouldn't, you know, it feels so crummy when you're in it, but sometimes those challenges can lead to your most amazing opportunities. You know, I wouldn't have walked away from my, you know, great paycheck to go start a cupcake business if I hadn't lost my job. At the time, I thought it was the world was coming to an end, but now I realize it was the best thing that ever happened to me. So I think don't overwhelm yourself. Take it one day at a time and one step at a time. Take stock of your strengths and, um, and get after it. And on the money side, use your day job to fund your daydream, right? Mm. Use that investment banking job to pay for them cupcakes. You got it. <laughs> I love that advice. So I know we are wrapping up here. I love to end on a happy note. Obviously, Sprinkles has become a massive success, a big hit. What's next for Candace Nelson? You have the book. Are you planning on making or taking another career shift with you know, the pizza business? Anything else? Never say never. Never say never. I've got all sorts of show ideas in this brain. I'm doing some angel investing now to help support other female founders. I'm considering doing a course uh, for entrepreneurs. I am still very much trying to get my book, Sweet Success, into the right hands. So please, I encourage people to check it out. And if you do love it, to write a review on Amazon because those Amazon reviews really, really help. They help with the algorithm. And I've just been you know, once you become an author, you really become shameless about talking about your book and asking people to leave sure. reviews, which I'm sure you probably learned being a podcaster as well. Leave a review about Vivian's podcast. Um, <laughs> so, and then, you know, I've got, I've got boys who need me still. I've got one that's just um, entering high school and one that's entering middle school. And I always want to make sure I have time for them and spending time with my family. So those are the priorities. I love that whole list of priorities. <laughs> we can have it all. Thank you so much for being our sweetest podcast guest. Ah, get it? So lame. But uh, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for sharing your wisdom, you know, creating entrepreneurship out of a moment of hardship. Mm. Uh, I've loved listening to your story and I'm sure the BFFs have as well. Thank you so much for having me. I love following you on TikTok and this has been a real joy. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Awesome. On behalf of myself and our advertising partners at Marshall's, we want to say thank you for listening to today's episode. Marshall's is always on point with the latest high quality on-trend fashion, beauty, and home decor at amazing prices so you can maximize your savings and invest those savings. Managing your finances properly does not mean you should be sacrificing quality in the areas that make you feel your best. At Marshalls, you can invest in a high-quality bag or that go-to designer dress to make you feel like the main character without spending a fortune. No matter what you're shopping for, Marshalls makes it possible to get the good stuff for less. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Net Worth and Chill. If you like this episode, make sure to leave a rating and a review and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Got a financial question you want answered in the future? You can leave me a voicemail or text me at 908-858-3410. Make sure to follow me at YarvichBFF across social media for even more relatable financial content. Special thanks to my team at Audioboom as well as Range Media and WME. See you next week. Bye!